0: This is the Design Goggles Podcast on b Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood, and I've been a Seattleite for two years.
1: And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Old Ballard neighborhood, and I grew up here in Seattle.
0: This week's show is titled Made in Seattle. With a creative community that is rooted in a history of craft, the Pacific Northwest is an environment where makers thrive. New and unexpected ideas are encouraged at every turn, whether it's fashion, photography, architecture, art, or music. Pacific Northwesterners are game. As people from outside Seattle make a home here, many are coming from places that have a very different approach to creativity and craft. Has this left the Seattle creative community changed? Can local makers compete and thrive in this new Seattle? What kind of opportunities are open for us to share a creative culture with the world? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Tina Witherspoon. Not only is she a colleague here at Born & Bellum, But the founder and designer of Boho Republic, a women's apparel label here in Seattle, creator of the prolific fashion blog Glam.Spoon, and a photographer to boot. Tina, thanks for making the time to sit and chat with us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So about how long have you been in Seattle?
2: Nearly 28 years,
1: which, I mean, am, am I a native now? Like, I think that gets native status. We've had this debate. With a lot of our listeners, where when do you become native? And I think there are several arguments. There's the one, you were too young to remember living anywhere else. That's not true. That That's me. I don't remember not living in Seattle. I came here when I was two. There's people like Leslie who we've had on who came here when she was, I think, nine. So she went through her entire main schooling years here. We decided that she was native enough Then there's there's people that have lived in Seattle longer than they've lived anywhere else. And that's a whole other level of Native, too. That is. And I think
2: I think I am barely in that category. Gone Native. I'm barely in that. Yeah, I'm gone Native.
0: According (laughs) to the Evergreen, it's how much you're willing to do in the rain with no jacket. Oh, then I'm a (laughs) Native. And that's that's the gauge that they use. Like if you are if you do not change your plans in any way, shape or form based on the rain, you're a Native. So, Tina, what uh, what neighborhoods have you lived in and where you live now?
2: So I have lived on I started on Capitol Hill when I moved here and I probably I probably have had 15 apartments on Capitol Hill. Like I think I stayed for like 11 and a half months at each one. And I was just like, I got to get out of here. I've lived in Ballard for a short 10 months. Beacon Hill for maybe a year and a half. The Central District for nine and a half months. Green Lake was the longest one, probably two years. And then we moved to the suburbs after we got married, Mill Creek, and now I live on Vashelon. So technically I don't live in Seattle, but it's King County.
0: Do you have a favorite out of all those? Do you think back nostalgically about one particular place?
2: Probably Capitol Hill and mm. going through kind of the notes about this, the whole idea of like the evolution of the city. I am that woman who's like, that used to be this and that used to be this. Like I lived on Capitol Hill. I lived on the, the Broadway end and the 15th end a couple of times and everything is different. Everything is different. So like the places that I lived just don't exist anymore. In fact, the very first apartment building that I rented is no longer there. That's where the light rail is on Broadway. So yeah, that's some evolution.
0: And it's funny, the the more I talk to people about uh, their time in Seattle, they're most nostalgic about it. everybody says it's the 90s. You were here in the 90s and you watched that evolution. What was it like in the 90s in Seattle for real?
2: Well, I have a, I probably have an interesting perspective on that because, okay, I was in my 20s. I was poor. So you can't really do a whole lot. I was an actor. So I was indoors 95% of the time. But I did... You know, I did feel the grunge spirit, if you will. And I went to shows and I actually Googled today while I was getting my hair done. I was looking online to see like, like, what were the names of those clubs I went to that don't exist anymore? Like Rock Candy and Off Ramp and stuff like that. And then I found a whole link about grunge tours. Someone's giving grunge tours. I read about
0: this. This was just recently. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But what I find sort of disconcerting about it is it's taking you to all the places where they died. Not where cool. it, like, like, you know, where Kirk Cobain died and where, you know, the, the I just, I found it a little disturbing. Yeah. It, you I would know
0: want to be like old. they played their first show here or they used to, like, drink at this bar. or right. Like, that's what I would want to know. Well,
2: I did find after that, I found one that just talks about the cool places that used to be here where everybody played, but they're no longer here. So... It was a nice little trip down memory lane, but yeah, I mean, I think I absorbed all of what was going on. My girlfriend and I would go out like probably every Friday and Saturday night and just whatever band was playing is what we listened to. We didn't necessarily like seek out any bands. I don't really remember Nirvana hitting the scene because at the time, let me remind you, I was an actress. So I was listening to a lot of Judy Garland,
0: <laughs> I'm not so
2: much into the grunge or the the metal, Um But I'm pretty sure I must have seen most of those bands at one point or another.
0: Were Seattleites aware that Seattle had become like a national obsession? Because during that time, it definitely was.
2: There's no way. Like probably not until, you know, Nirvana ended up on, you know, MTV Unplugged or whatever. Um, It wasn't really like obvious. We were just like, that's just the music and that's what we listen to. And it's just a local band and it's not a big deal.
0: Was Seattle better in the 90s?
2: I can't say it was better. It was different. Every decade is different. It had its own interesting parts. And again, I was young and stupid and poor. So like, I don't necessarily want to go back to the 90s. I'm just now very, you know, smart and together in my life versus then. But at the same time, you know, there is a nostalgia that you're like, wow, I kind of like grew, I, I went through that whole 10 years and didn't feel like it was in any way some spectacle that the world was watching us. And then after the fact, you're like, whoa, that's really weird. And you know, I do remember exactly where I was when I found out that Kurt Cobain killed himself. Like, (laughs) I don't know, that's a grunge uh, badge of honor, I guess. Do you wanna know where I was? Well, yeah, now. (laughs) I was working at a bakery in Pike Place Market and I was a baker, which really just meant that I Put the pastries in the oven and turned on the that's, timer. That's I didn't really like create the dough or do any of that stuff, mm-hmm. but I would put them in and then I went downstairs to get some more and I opened the freezer and the radio was on. So I was literally standing in a freezer of pastry yes. <laughs> when I heard, and I was very sad. Everybody it was, was, it was a very sad thing, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it just felt like, it felt like life as usual. And like, certainly nobody is paying attention to us.
0: Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, one Grunge thing was happening and uh, was it? singles came out and there was the whole like Miramax Films obsession with Seattle and like, oh, yeah, it was that's at least from back east. Everybody was hanging on every new band that was coming out of Seattle. It's like it's all that mattered.
2: Yeah, no, you're right about that. In fact, the fact that I was an actress, I remember the open call for extras to be in singles. And Wasn't of reality was-
0: bites also. Was that also Seattle?
2: can't quite remember i know it was set in seattle whether it was filmed here or not but yeah i i remember vividly remember being really angry that i didn't get to be an extra in singles
0: so when you're doing your going around town being this used to be that this used to be that what's that experience like because obviously anybody new to the city doesn't have that they have no frame of reference
2: i mean it's not sad i mean i totally agree with progress and i think everything should be updated and i've worked in the architecture industry for 15 years so like I understand progress and you know refurbishing and all of that stuff and it makes perfect sense um I think it's just I think it's just like feeling that end of an era thing I feel like I've had an end of an era several times in my life where I'm just like okay this is just not happening anymore and that's okay let's move on to the next thing it's not that big a deal
0: So as the 90s were coming to an end, where were you and where was the city?
2: Early 2000s, I had actually quit acting, which was the reason I came out here. And I joined a band and I met my husband. So I had like a whole new chapter of my life was being in this fun little ska band and learning about a whole different area. And then we got married in 2002 and moved to the suburbs. So, like, kind of a shift, I guess, from from that. But all good. I mean, it was
0: all good. Was there any growth in the early 2000s, mid-2000s in Seattle? Was it noticeable?
2: Maybe I was removed by living in the suburbs and didn't necessarily notice it. But You know, I I noticed things like the bus tunnels. Were you guys ever here in time to take the bus tunnels, which is now the light rail? So that was like a great improvement, which I don't actually remember when it started. But for many years, I lived on Capitol Hill and I would walk down to the Paramount, get in the bus tunnel, take the bus all the way down to the Piner Square place where I worked and get out. And I never had to pay for the transportation for like eight years. Thanks, Seattle. So that was super Mm -hmm. fun. But. Like that was the biggest progress that I can remember from that time. I was probably not plugged into the design world at that time. I go back and forth between creative and analytical jobs. So like every six months I'd be either working for architects or lawyers or architects or Mm -hmm. lawyers. So I just keep both sides of my brain uh, in, you know, working order.
0: It's funny, all these podcasts somehow circle around the growth or the new people. But I don't know if there was a starting point or an event where like, The new people became a thing versus every other city just has. Sometimes we have growth. Sometimes we don't. It's not an event. We talk about it, especially on the show, as if it's an event. Was there a a moment or a year or a couple of years where you felt the shift as a Seattleite? Rachel, this is kind of a question for you, too.
2: I'm not not really sure that I've felt it, but so the whole reason like we're talking about like my creative endeavors i have basically had blinders on for a really long time <laughs> so yeah. if if there's something that's that's getting too populated and too excitement-oriented, I usually avoid it. I'm like, oh, the kids are going to enjoy that. I'm going to go do my thing. So I'm not entirely sure that I noticed. What I have noticed is just in the last maybe six years, um, the growth and the influx and the traffic changing and just kind of the way our, our blocks don't look the same anymore. Everywhere you look, there's an artisanal something or other. And it's just very different. It just feels like a real city. It feels like upscale compared to what it used to be. We used to be really excited to go to a dive bar and pay $1.50 for a beer and get a free bowl of nuts. That doesn't, that doesn't exist <laughs> free anymore. free bowl of nuts? It doesn't exist yeah. anymore.
0: Now there's like an eater list of 10 best bowls of nuts. (laughs) Don't Google that if you're listening. That's probably not going to lead you where you want. Uh, So you mentioned you've had a couple different lives and you have a lot of different creative endeavors. Was it after you were done acting and had moved on? Was that when you started doing your own creative thing? And what was your first... What was your first thing that you started doing?
2: Well, I think the first thing I did after acting was to go to music. So that was when I joined the band, met my husband. We were in this little ska band for like five years. And that was super fun. Actually, when I Googled that uh, uh, clubs that used to be here that are no longer here, um, that was kind of reminding me nostalgically. We were playing at the central saloon on the night before the big earthquake in 2001. And so like, I'm just taken right back to that place. So that was all fun, but all bands fall apart. And so ours was destined to fall apart and it did. And that's when I started sewing again and deconstructing things. And then that led to creating an actual commercial brand and then having to take my own photos of my fashion is what led me to become a photographer. And so it all kind of like seamlessly goes together. But my mother doesn't like it when I call myself a schizophrenic artist. Most people say, oh, why don't you just call yourself a Renaissance woman? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm I'm a schizophrenic artist. I will try anything and I will give it my all. But if it's not working, I'll just move on. Um, so I think the the... The lack of fear that you're going to fail has worked really well for me most of my life because I'm just not afraid to just try something new.
1: Do you think that your various years working in architectural places has helped inform your ability to critique? I don't,
2: I think in in previous jobs, you know, setting aside our current current job. Previously, I haven't felt that I've been involved in all of the critiques. I feel like again, I was sort of like separated. I was just working in the administrative world. And so it wasn't until I came to Port and Bellum that I felt like I was included in everything. And pretty much the last four years have just been a masterclass in hypersensitivity, critique, noticing things, like broadening my scope of of what I see when I look at design. So it's been a really great education here, and that is sort of what has informed these the new like sort of interior vignettes photography that I've been doing is I'm I go back and forth between like should we stage this to make it look better or should we show it as it is? Like, but everybody on Instagram wants you to make it look better. <laughs> so that's what we do. You know, I, I now understand the whole straighten the lines and, you know, bring up the shadows so that this is featured. And I feel like I'm much more of a critic about, what I'm doing as well as other people are doing than I ever was in the past. Maybe the fact that I am not afraid to fail and just try things meant that I wasn't really critiquing along the way. I was just kind of like enjoying the ride, creating art and having fun and not feeling like there's any end game where somebody's gonna tell me that's terrible and you failed.
0: But it's funny, I feel like Seattle, and this actually goes back to one of our early shows uh, that we had with, with Haley Buckby. We were talking about how the art community grew in Seattle. And because it was because it was craft baits, it was somehow very, very accepting. And that it's a very, very supportive environment. And the level of criticism isn't as severe as maybe on the East Coast. You grew up on the East Coast, right? Did you find there to be a difference between the way people made and consumed art on the East Coast to how it was here?
2: You know, I I pretty much left the East Coast after college, so I don't know that I was in the art world enough to actually answer that question, but I could easily tell you that the personalities are so different that mm-hmm. I'm sure that that's true. I'm sure that people on the East Coast, generally speaking, would consume art as objects to own versus objects to admire which mm-hmm. I think is maybe the difference between the two coasts. I had I actually my freshman year in college my roommate was an artist and she was just this beautiful painter and sculptor and she did all these incredible abstract things and I used to just say to her what are you making what what is this going to be and she's like it doesn't matter what's going to be. <laughs> and it like blew my mind because I had never met anybody like that and she was from Carmel. But at the same time, she couldn't wait to move out to Seattle. And she was the first person I knew who, when I moved out here. Well,
0: that makes a lot of sense, though, because like you have you need an objective on the East Coast. Like, well, what's what's the point? What are you what, what are you getting at? What are you trying to do? And here it's just right. like, I'm just doing my thing yeah. because of my thing makes me happy. <laughs> And that should make you happy too, right? And that's, I kind of like that about but here. But you,
2: you definitely hit on a, uh, a theme, at least in my life, if not in a lot of people's lives who go back and forth between craft and art. Um, one of the reasons I started... Boho Republic was because I was straddling the line between craft and art for so long. And the two worlds still don't really get along. Mm. Um, crafting is crafting. If you make something macrame, you're not fashion, you know, like craft mm. and fashion are two different. So, in order to be considered a fashion designer, I had to kind of move away from the craft world. I did the very first exhibition with urban craft uprising back in like 2005 or something like that. I did it for like five years. And then I realized there was a, a huge shift I had to make. I'm either going to be in the craft world or I break free now and I move into fashion. And that's what I decided to do because they're just, they just don't talk to each other.
0: This is something I've wondered even during doing research for this interview, who is a Seattle maker who is a Seattle artist? Is there overlap between those two things? Or are they completely separate boxes? Are they parallel lanes?
2: I hope there's overlap, I have mm-hmm. to say. Are you familiar with the group? There is a group called Seattle, Seattle Made. Artists. And so yeah. I'm a member of that. Mm-hmm. I haven't been very active with them, but I've done maybe two or three events with them. I think it's great that they're trying to like create this conglomerate out of small artists who can't really do all that stuff on their own and mm-hmm. and like have maybe a, a larger collective but that is a really good question I mean so there's also the craft is a noun and a verb right so you make a craft but you also handcraft things so whether or not you're in the art world right. or the craft world there's, there's like probably nine hours of debate around that whole subject in general. So tune
0: in for parts three, four, tune five, in. six and seven following this. Yeah,
2: But I, I I honestly feel like a maker is someone who makes things, period. So if you make something with your own two hands, you are a maker, whether you sell it, whether you post it, whether you do any of that stuff. My whole lineage is about being a do-it-yourselfer You know, using recycled materials whenever possible and being as self-sufficient as possible. Um, I love coming from that place because I feel like it has made me more creative. When I first started my deconstructed fashion under Glam Spoon, it was about you have these six garments to deconstruct and make into something else. So you're limited in scope. I guess it's sort of like a remodel, right? Right. Right. As opposed to a new construction where you can just go buy your fabric and start from scratch. So I like that challenge Mm -hmm. of being given a certain amount of material to make something great out of versus the world's your oyster. Actually, that's daunting in itself, too. But it's a lot easier to have no constraints on what you're making.
0: Do you think a factor is if you are being helped and how many people are helping you? For instance, if a person is making things with their bare hands, let's just say he's a woodworker and he's making tables and uh, he has one helper, I don't think there'd be any, oh, sure, he's a Seattle maker. What if he has 20 helpers? Is he still a Seattle maker or is then, is he a brand? Is Has he graduated from being a Seattle maker? Is he something else? Or in like for, uh, you could use your own, you could use Boho Republic as an example. How big could you get and still be considered... A maker.
2: Well, so now you're getting into the territory of is he a maker or a designer? Because right. I am I have successfully moved beyond just being a maker into a maker and a designer because I have someone sewing for me, right. which honestly is the only way that it would still be in existence because <laughs> I'm so busy. But I think that's a legitimate it's still a legitimate use of the word maker. Mm-hmm whether or not you make all of them with your own hands, you make the sample with your own hands. So when I design something new and I make the prototype and I give the instructions and the, the the patterns to someone, I have made something that they are just going to replicate. I think I'm still a maker in that sense. I'm not
1: really sure about a woodworker with twenty helpers though. That seems actually well like I mean cheating. this goes <laughs> way back in time too though, because this has always been a question, right? Who the, the master artist, for okay. example. You know, foggy on my art history at this point, but even people like Leonardo da Vinci, the, he had a studio full of artists that were apprentices and learning and learning the ways and all that stuff. And so did everyone else in his time, and for hundreds of years in either direction. And and so, where do you draw the line of you know this is a master artist, and this piece comes with the value of this name tagged to it? When mm-hmm. maybe perhaps he or she was being more of an oversight role, and you know did a few crucial brushstrokes here over the course of the development of this very large painting. There's mm-hmm. so much that we don't know. Artist versus maker versus designer versus right. craftsperson versus all the other words. There is a whole lot in there. And I feel like they're all, it's just such a complicated web of mm-hmm. who did what and when and who oversaw whom. I mean, if you are, if you're the overseer, it's almost like who has control
2: of what gets produced. Maybe you get to use all the hats. Maybe you get the maker, the designer, the coordinator, the fabricator maybe you get all the hats if you're in charge of what right. gets produced if you're just lending your skills to someone else's design you're a maker but you're a contracted laborer in some ways And it is it's an evolution, right, because the whole process of art over the years has been to bring on apprentices and transfer the skills and not let the skills die out. If there's something special that someone does, you don't want them to go to their grave, not having shared it with someone. So like there's that whole tradition.
1: We try to, in our field, say, oh, well, we maybe designed this and helped it be constructed as it was, but we didn't literally get down there and put this building together. And so then we give credit to the contractors or to whoever.
0: In terms of the Seattle environment that we were talking about before, the Seattle creative environment that is so supportive, is there a direct or maybe inverse relationship between the distance between the maker and the thing? and the support you receive, particularly the Seattle environment. REI, for instance, sure, Seattleites are proud of REI, but no one would say, oh, you know, this person at REI is a maker of hiking pants. (laughs) And they belong in the maker community. That's no, that's a falsehood. And definitely I think everyone would consider a, a lone maker or designer working with one or two people making that thing, sure, you belong in the maker community. And REI doesn't need that support and that's universally recognized and they're certainly not vilified. Everybody here is super proud that REI is a Seattle company and everybody really likes that. But I'm wondering if it's size or is it success that the support all of a sudden bleeds away at a certain point,
1: or a level of corporateness, see.
0: or am I right? Or is that a, a level of perceived corporateness, maybe?
2: And there's also there's there's establishing your brand as a corporate entity that moves you into a whole new category where um the maybe the one person who's designing doesn't even interact with the rest of the company at that point. Like that's just you're just in corporate America, you're producing a widget at that point. At some point, whoever started REI was a maker. Sure. But you you get beyond that and then you're basically a corporation that produces widgets, right? Which I have never wanted to do. Right. So in my mind, the maker is still the purest form of a collective of people who are sharing ideas and trying to create something brand new that nobody's aware of. I don't know. Some people want to reach the corporate status and some people want to stay small. So um, there's two ways of approaching it. There are a ton of independent fashion designers in this country That only sell to independent shops around the nation and only produce in limited runs purposely to stay in that maker community, whether or not they've been offered opportunities at Macy's or Nordstrom or whatever. Maybe when I was a little girl, the idea of producing my dresses in Nordstrom would be attractive, but it's not anymore. Nordstrom is what it is and it's great and I shop there, but... I don't necessarily want to be the Nordstrom designer. I want to stay in that place of limited numbers so that when you tell a customer, there's only 400 of these in the world, mm-hmm. that's a special volume. thing yeah. and it means something. So maybe maybe it's a matter of volume. Maybe it's a matter of focus on your community, your client base, your where you want to put your influence in
0: the world. And I think that's potentially a wonderful thing. Because on the, on the East Coast, what I experienced at least was it's the opposite. You get no support until you've made it and you don't need it. And then you get all the support, which seems completely backwards. But that's why everything is always so linked with ambition and actualization, because you can't get any momentum until you've already made it, which seems counterintuitive. Whereas here, it actually that actually seems to make a lot more sense, that relationship.
2: Well, and to be perfectly honest, it probably sounds like a luxury to say, I only want to service these small independent boutiques. And I only like what business person (laughs) limits themselves like, oh, I won't I won't sell to Nordstrom. But it's not really even about limiting yourself. It's about focusing. It's all about the shop local, the the small mom and pop maker Mm -hmm. mentality where you're like, I just want to produce things That people who go to independent shops and people who shy away from corporate America want to purchase. Mm. It's philosophical. It totally is. And I think that's a relatively new thing in the last 10 years. I think the recession pushed more people in that direction than maybe would have gotten there on their own. People started shopping at thrift stores for the first time. I've been going to thrift stores since I was 12. You know, it's just like fun and it's like a treasure hunt. And, and you know, when you're growing up and you have not that much money, it's a great option, but it became almost ca- like this this cachet that like, I'm going to go
0: to the thrift store. I was just reading an article about that. I think it was the same article about the guy who was doing the grunge tours. It was, was talking about how Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all those guys were wearing flannels with plaid because... They were poor and they shopped at thrift stores and that's what thrift stores had. And then maybe it was John Varvatos or somebody like in the 90s did a line of like grunge clothing. And at least the people in the know in Seattle found it revolting.
2: There have actually been several designers who have tried to do a a grunge 90s throwback collection. And you're just like,
0: Like,
2: why would I buy a $3,000 flannel?
0: Yeah, like literally that was an L.L. Bean shirt that Eddie Vedder was wearing. Um, Do you think it's linked to authenticity?
2: I hope so. I know at least in my short kind of retail designer career, I have always wanted to be authentic in what I'm presenting and where the materials come from, why this dress is better for you than someone else's, why you should shop local, all of that stuff. I think it all is kind of wrapped up together. There is a certain amount of inauthenticity in the fashion industry. And I have a love-hate relationship with it, generally speaking. I don't I don't understand how anyone could put a collection out in Paris and not care that no one buys it. Like I, I understand the trickle down theory. Like you put this out and then the the smaller named brands start copying it and it trickles down and pretty soon it's in Marshalls and everybody can afford it. But I just don't understand that. Like Art for art's sake, I get, like, if that's why you're doing it, that's great. It's just art, but don't call it fashion. It's it's something no one will ever wear.
0: I think a lot of creative genres have the same issue, whether it's architecture or music or like everybody has that. There's that conflict between nothing is really new. Everything comes from other stuff, yet it's a fine line if it's too much like a thing that came before it has no value.
2: <laughs> and thinking about your comment about like these fashion designers putting grunge on the runway, it it is the antithesis of what grunge was, which was yes. come as you are, if I may quote. I got to keep up my 90s cred here. Um but seriously, I mean that's really what it was about. It it was it was a movement in itself that was much more about just the music and the community and not about dressing fancy or having publicist or any of that stuff.
1: So what do you think about, I mean, maybe it's finally starting to fade a little bit, but we've had this whole 90s fashion comeback and normcore and all this stuff. Does that make you have that same feeling of like, oh, this is no longer authentic now that we're mimicking this? Can something still be authentic if it's unironically mimicking something that was real before. I can appreciate the celebration
2: of that mm-hmm. era, but it, it it's a celebration of the era in a form that today's audience can understand, which would never be the same thing as the authentic thing anyway. So maybe I give them a pass and just say, thanks for, thanks for, you know, recognizing that this was a significant moment.
1: When we read we repeat that, right? I mean, yes. every fashion cycle comes back around eventually. It seems like it's more of a rapid pace now than it used to be. Fashion of the 1890s, and it was decade by decade by decade by decade, and now I feel like we're cycling through those iconic decades faster? Does, is that true? Or am I just mm-hmm. like having a time it's warp so happening? I actually think the iconic decades
2: are put on a pedestal and, and thought of as precious right now, whereas... The '80s and '90s and aughts, if that's what we call them, seem to sort of simultaneously come back and go away at the, like every yeah. two
1: years. We're it's recycling. Sort of, we're a recycling lot of, a lot of the older decades, melding them and bringing them together. Mm-hmm. And
2: but it doesn't seem like there's been just one decade that is in is 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 cool right now. It seems like they just go every couple of years. It's yeah. oh, it's '90s. Oh, it's aughts, Oh, it's '80s again. Although for Seattle,
0: I feel like. There's two decades everybody points to when they try to define the city. And it was the 60s because of the World's Fair and the 90s because of the grunge movement. And maybe these are coming up a lot more because all these new people are moving here. Some want to understand Seattle, some don't. People who found their lives are 30 years later and they're like, I want to understand Seattle. Everyone's grasping for that definition And I wonder if this, maybe it's not this decade, it's the next one, the 2020s. We're one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And, you know, Seattle's in focus as much, if not more than it was in the 90s. But now people graduating college are hyper mobile and are going to move here and experience instead of just watching it in a movie. And I think people are grasping on to those two particular decades here, almost like, We as Americans all grasp to the 50s when somebody asks us, well, what is American culture? We're like, well, there's homes here and there's bars and restaurants in town and you get in your car and drive to town and then you get in your car and drive to work and like that decade defined it. So we still have that regardless of whether or not it was actually true. uh, There were so many other things going on in the 50s, but that's the image. And maybe that's why we're focusing in Seattle on those two in particular so much lately.
2: I'm actually kind of worried that um, we will never actually surpass the cachet of the 90s. Like, I don't know if we can do anything that uh, indelible on the fabric of the country again, you know, or the world, whatever it is. And But maybe we're trying. Maybe we're grasping at straws to be like, what's the next thing? But I actually feel like maybe this decade will be like Seattle's tech boom. So maybe that's going to happen and that'll somehow measure up to the 90s grunge thing or something. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> <Like maybe those laughs> those are, the irony well. of the 60s and the 90s being the ones in Seattle are those were both economic booms. <laughs> and now we're in the midst of another huge economic boom.
1: But if you were going to start um, a, like a whole new direction for a fashion that would define a decade, does, does that happen in a geographic location or does it only really become that big if it simultaneously happens in a bunch of locations at the same time and that's what you need to have the critical mass to make it really become a thing that impacts something as big as as, as fashion across a cultural mm. empire? Well,
2: and there's two things that you're getting at here. So there's fad and there's fashion, right? Mm-hmm. So fads happen simultaneously across urban cities, generally speaking, probably now through social media. I don't know how it used to happen. Um, but fads were a thing. And it it was the thing that always made you date back to a certain year versus a piece that is timeless, right? Um, but the thing about grunge fashion is that it was not a fashion movement. It just was pointed at after the music was created as a thing to hold on to. So I don't actually know how you create that again because you have to have a movement that has a haphazard sort of fashion movement that people like that they then glom onto so like it it, that was like the most
1: organic and unnatural thing that ever happened was that grunge became a fashion so what are we doing right now that we aren't aware of yet that is creating I don't know I have, I
0: have suppositions but I have no way to prove my suppositions one of which it's funny when I was like on Spotify a couple months ago when Justin Timberlake's new album dropped Man of the Woods and he's all like with a herd of bison and like in a in a like you know Pacific Northwesty coat and stuff and I'm like oh is this right no I know but and that but that's the thing that's the inauthenticity that's like surrounding him mimicking what he and his handlers think is this rugged Northwest thing. I wonder if that is already in in terms of fad, if that is already happening. There are a lot of, you know, people are moving from the sunbelt to here in droves and entire generations values align with Pacific Northwest values right now. Maybe that is what's getting mimicked and we're just not that aware.
2: That's hilarious. I actually haven't seen a that's music like, video in so long. Like that, I—that <laughs> you just blew my mind that I was like, what is Justin Timberlake doing? Um, Apparently it's that. That's hilarious. But that is so true, right? So pop culture pulls from whatever's happening, like ripped from the headlines or whatever, and puts their very expensive spin on everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm totally not surprised by that. If what we're doing right now inspires a generation of people to wear sensibly uh, like weather resistant clothing, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. But, um, layers. Wear layers. Layers and yeah.
0: Cause it feels like here there is a little bit of mimicry, I suppose. It's like the whole fashion. I just came from a hike look where nothing you're wearing would actually work on a hike except it's designed to look as if you could mm, go actually hiking. I think it's the opposite of that. <laughs> I
1: think there's a lot of stuff that people wear here that would do well for being out in the wild hiking and and being in the being exposed in the elements that people wear around the town that they and they and they are people that never need the kind of Serious garment that they are wearing. Right. like they wear serious outdoor gear around town, and and don't have the skills to survive <laughs> out in the woods. But their jacket. Will but survive. their jacket would be fine if they knew how to like you know survive the night. Their jacket would be the thing <laughs> that would keep them safe. But I think that that there is this Seattle mentality of that of, of like you've got to look like you've got some serious gear and you know what you're doing and you're a real outdoorsman, even if you really. <laughs> Did not need to spend that much money for a jacket to wear around town.
2: I think that has been the case for a very long time, too. And so the one thing that I am noticing with the influx of people from outside of Seattle and, I don't know, maybe just the fact that we're, you know, progressing so quickly is that there is a cosmopolitan feel to the city that really was never there before. I have never been accused of wearing uh, workout or hiking gear. <laughs> it's never actually happened. And I don't even pretend to, but I'm, I used to feel like I was in the minority that like everybody around me was wearing an REI jacket and I was wearing something that was going to get ruined in the rain. But I feel like I have more soldiers on my, in my army now than I used to. Um, I walk around town and I see people like really nicely dressed. I mean, we're no Vancouver, BC, that's my favorite cosmopolitan city. Everybody was beautiful and well dressed in Vancouver, but
1: um, but we're stepping it up. Like people are actually sure. wearing heels. To you go stand to work out more and- now if you've mm-hmm. got socks on under mm-hmm. your Birkenstocks. Yes. People point that out more now than they used those to. Those it times. used to be pretty normal. It's we still, I think, have one foot in Seattle, like on the side of well, this is my this is my dress fleece that I'm wearing. <laughs> No, but everybody has a dress You were the one. I actually
0: bought one because you mentioned it one day. Like, I saw one out. I'm like, a dress fleece. I like, I was like, it was like another Pacific Northwest milestone. I was like, I own a dress fleece. And I wore it to work. It was amazing.
2: I think you're absolutely right that there is still the acceptedness of... You don't have to go that extra mile, but I think people are taking steps, like baby steps towards figuring it out. But because we're still so accepting and inclusive, nobody's going I to say to them, so you can't so get really in. Yeah. Thank you for doing 72% of a great outfit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you've
1: got your dress lace on? Great. We'll forgive oh, your I socks, feel like and there's a, socks. there's like a
0: down market label in there called 72%. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly fashionable will be the little tagline. So to bring it back to the maker community moving forward, how, if you were to take the temperature of the maker community now with all these new people coming in and uh, consuming things a little bit differently and appreciating things a little bit differently, do you think there's more excitement and feeling like there's lots more opportunity or is there more hesitance about authenticity and the ability to preserve that uh, supportive environment?
2: I think there's probably excitement. I think I think for the first time in at least, you know, my short history in Seattle, there's way more opportunity for you on every scale, right? So let's say you make one product or you make a collection of products. Um, there's more opportunity for you, whether it's selling in independent shops, whether it's um, selling at craft sales or whatever. But there's also, you know, the... Because of the Great Depression of 2008 or whatever, um, the big box stores are actually looking to the makers. So that's a movement. Um, There's this great thing that happened at Nordstrom. They hired this amazing creative director who does pop-ins with local designers from time to time. So that's happening in Nordstrom. Like, Mm. that's a huge move. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity, and I I don't necessarily feel like it's – exclusive or there's it's cutthroat in any way I feel like there's room for everybody Um, if you really believe in your product you're probably going to be a success Um, that's like the one thing and that goes back to authenticity right so if you believe in what you're making and you can sell what you're making you know responsibly and uh, respectfully you're probably going to find your market But in the olden days, which I'm calling like the early 2000s, when Urban Craft Uprising first started, it was the first of its kind. Nobody had ever had a craft sale in Seattle. All of a sudden there's a craft sale and they, you know, they're still around. It's been going on for years and all of these copycats have piggybacked onto it. And so there's like a network of places you can sell your your wares. Um, There's also tons of independent stores you can sell your things in. Um, There's Etsy, which I've seen grow from this tiny little clunky website into this multi-million dollar uh, platform for people to sell their handmade goods. There's so much more opportunity. I, I can't say that it is more or less authentic now, but there's there, it's just so much more mainstream that there's more opportunity in that sense. When it wasn't mainstream, when it was like a weird thing to go to a craft sale and buy a a handmade bag out of rubber tires, that was weird, right? <laughs> but then we got past that. And now, you know, people are are creating things from recycled tires and it's mainstream and like everybody's carrying it. And I don't know, it's kind of like pushed itself forward as a movement into the mainstream so that it's... It's not unusual anymore, but it's still special because it's not a corporate product that someone is, you know, banging out in India or whatever. Um, It's actually there's a whole made in USA that's a sub movement of this whole, you know, maker thing. Um, People are are bringing their factories back to America. That whole thing also came out of the recession. So I think it's I think it's like its own little new movement of making things in the United States and, you know, communities and local, but it's so much larger than we ever thought it would be.
0: Well said. I honestly can't believe we're out right of time. This went so fast. But thank you very much for making the time to sit down with us. You're
2: so welcome. Thank you for having awesome. me.
0: Our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our social media for that. It will be held here at Board of Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter or the blog on BoredEnvelopment.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.